You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. I'll invite you back to your seats. Welcome. Welcome to everyone. Welcome to all of our guests joining us. Thank you for gathering here with us this morning. My name's Michael. I'm the pastoral resident here at River City. And for those of you who are wondering, what is a pastoral resident? I can tell you that it does not mean that I reside in the homes of our pastors. (laughs) Pastor Dalton and Pastor Jeremy both have wonderful homes, but I live in my own home with my wife, Rachel. But I do count it a privilege to be a pastoral resident at River City Church. It's very exciting to be part of the work God is doing as we seek to replant River City. And my hope is that this season of preparing for pastoral ministry would someday open doors of opportunity for me to be a part of revitalization or replanting efforts happening at other churches. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you uh, for being a part of this season that I'm in of preparing uh, for ministry, for training and equipping for ministry. And one of the things I get to do as part of being a pastoral resident is preaching. It is a joy to be with you and to preach from God's word. And so let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab one of the Bibles located behind you uh, over there at that welcome table. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. Our sermon text is on page 860 in those Bibles, and our focus today is on the rhythm of public teaching. We are currently in a sermon series titled, Tired of Being Tired, Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. And you have heard it said that we want to not only learn Jesus's words and works, but we also want to embrace his way of living as our own. Together, we want to learn from Jesus's rhythms in his life and ministry on earth and teach his ways to others. And so today, we're going to address the relational rhythm of teaching. Teaching is a more public-facing rhythm, and that's because Jesus teaches in front of people. This is similar to what our pastors and church leaders do for us on Sunday mornings as called and ordained servants of Christ. And we also see that Jesus teaches people in in less formal ways, in the spaces where he lived, worked, and played. And our passage will show that Jesus even sits down and he begins teaching. He begins teaching in, in conversation with the people around him. And that kind of teaching is for everyone who's called as church members, who are called as Christians. So today's sermon will place a special emphasis on teaching to highlight our call as teachers. But maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus was a teacher, but I'm an accountant or I'm a software developer. What is teaching for me? How am I a teacher? Well, I just want to tell you that teaching is for you because we're actually commanded to teach others. Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, verse 20, to teach them all that I have commanded you. And that is for when we're making disciples. So you see, Jesus took this rhythm seriously because he knew that the scriptures that we're supposed to teach were all about him. And we want to be a church that is all about Jesus and his word. So let's read together Jesus' teaching from Luke 4, 16 through 30. I'll read the passage and you can follow along. And he... 
Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And I pray that we would receive your teaching in this way. We know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word will stand forever. And as we engage more deeply with your word and as we hear it preached, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help us. Would you open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, I visited my hometown and attended the town's homecoming celebration. Amidst all of the class reunions and the parade and the football game happening, I was excited to see people I hadn't seen in a while. I grew up in a small town, so it wasn't difficult to make my rounds visiting with my old friends and neighbors. Being that the main festivities were held at the school, I also met with many of my old teachers. I met with some of my favorite teachers and some of my not-so-favorites. But one of my favorites was Miss May. I remember I didn't chat long with Miss May, but it was long enough for me to remember why she was one of my favorite teachers. She was my favorite because she deeply cared about us learning what was good for us to know. You could see her care for us. As an English teacher, you could see her care for teaching us how to read, write, and speak English well. When Miss May got up to present something, she really wanted us to know how important that something was and how beneficial it would be for us to learn it. So she would illustrate the concepts in a way that made sense, and she would answer the myriad of questions from students to the best of her abilities. Even on the days when she was tired from teaching and her illustrations weren't quite on point and her answers to our questions were less than satisfactory, she held out to us the innate good found in the language arts. And as a result, I was changed by what I was taught. I can read and write. I can stand up here today and speak to you all. 
And that's in no small part because of the teaching I received from Miss May. I can share the good that I learned with others in my everyday life. And here's why I share this. We are formed by the teaching we receive and we form others by our teaching. And this is especially true when teaching the gospel is part of our discipleship because the gospel is the greatest good we have been taught and it is the greatest good we will teach. Helping people understand the gospel by communicating this good news to others, illustrating it and answering questions about it it's all massively important in anyone's discipleship journey. And Jesus thought this was massively important too. That's why during his earthly ministry, you could often find him teaching to his friends and even to outsiders. Whether in the home of Martha and Mary, at the dinner table with the Pharisee, or in our passage today, the synagogue, you could find Jesus teaching the good news. And the good news Jesus taught was not a subject he learned and then taught to others. Rather, this good news is Jesus. It is who he is, and we see here it is his mission to teach others about himself being the good news everyone needs. We read about the good news in the scriptures, and Jesus is claiming he is the one who the entirety of the scriptures leads to. Therefore, if we want to teach the good news found in the scriptures, we should take our cues from Jesus and his teaching. So my main point for our sermon this afternoon is that the scriptures lead to Jesus, so our teaching should lead to Jesus. The scriptures lead to Jesus, so our teaching should lead to Jesus. And when our teaching leads to Jesus, we will see that Jesus' teaching is the remedy to us who need his remedy. We will see that Jesus' teaching is repulsive to those who are repulsed by him. And we'll see that Jesus' teaching is rallying us to rally others to himself. We want to see Jesus' rhythm of teaching in play, and what better place to start than in verses 16 and 17 here, with a bit about the setting of Jesus' teaching. You see, Jesus' teaching is a rhythm for Jesus because he does it regularly. The text says here it was his custom to teach. In fact, many Israelite Jews over many years practiced this rhythm regularly and even built spaces to house the teaching of the scriptures. And each week, the Old Testament was read, and the leaders of the faith community would re teach the audience about the text. And Jesus plays right into this rich history of teaching. And today, we emulate this as little outposts of the kingdom of God. Yes, our context for teaching looks very different today, but we can trace our rhythm of teaching back to these moments in Scripture. So, on the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue. He read from the scroll of Isaiah, which is today the, the book of Isaiah in our Bibles, and then he made a messianic claim. You might be wondering, what does messianic mean? It means we call Jesus our Messiah. It means that when Jesus teaches us, teaches us that he's the anointed one in verse 18, he was divinely commissioned by God we see that, the spirit of the Lord, he's divinely commissioned by God to be the bringer of good news, to be the savior of our sins, to be our Messiah. But really, we can ask ourselves, what, what good is it for us that Jesus is our Messiah? Well, with his identity defined, the nature of Jesus's mission is to save us, to save us. And our salvation here is described by four ailments that plague us. The first is fundamental to our means of healing because Jesus is called to proclaim good news to the poor. 
And the poor here is not merely an economic status, but it is us who humbly and honestly respond to Jesus in his invitation of good news. And the captives are not an occupied nation, but it is us who Jesus frees from our captivity to sin. Likewise, the blind are not merely those who cannot see, but it is we who cannot seek the good news without the sight Jesus gives us. And finally, the oppressed are not merely those under the thumb of a tyrant, but we who Jesus liberates from our bondage to sin. You see, Jesus is the one Isaiah prophesied would do all these good things for us, which makes Jesus' teaching the remedy to us who need his remedy. And that's all of us. But if we're being honest with ourselves, do we always treat Jesus as good news for our lives? Do you? Or do we think ourselves self-sufficient or good enough to handle each day as it comes at us? Consider Liz, who's a business leader at her company. If she were honest with herself, Liz would admit that her career is her living the good life. She has reaped the fruit of her labor with a growing brand and reputation that precede her in every boardroom meeting. She influences her colleagues and is an influencer on social media. Yet Liz, like all of us, is still human, still humbled by the ailments of sin, suffering, and death that inevitably crash her good life, be it COVID, a car wreck, or in her case, diagnosis of terminal cancer. Despite doing her part to advance civilization on an industrial level, Liz cannot evade the inevitable and even chooses to be blind to the carnage cancer inflicts on her. No amount of wealth, medicine, or self-sufficiency can bail her out of one day being terminated from this life. She's without a solution to death. And like Liz, we will all face death. Our influence will wane, our careers will tire, and our bodies will end. We need to see the gravity of this. But the remedy Jesus promises to administer will give us new life in him. And we need to see the goodness of this. Not only that, we need to teach this good news to others, even if they refuse the remedy. They still need to know, because their day of accepting the remedy may still come. And this leads us to those who are, who are repulsed by Jesus' remedy because they're repulsed by him. Up until this point, we have not talked a lot about all those gathered in the synagogue listening to Jesus. But in verse 16, we can piece together details about Jesus' upbringing by identifying his hometown of Nazareth. From there, we can trace Jesus' background to where he formed relationships with his friends and fellow synagogue members. So we know that Jesus was known by his community, and we also know that Jesus was rejected by his community. But Jesus did not back down from teaching his community about who he really was to them, their long-awaited Messiah. This scripture that Jesus read and claims he has fulfilled in their hearing, in verse 21, came from all the way back in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And you can bet the audience knew those passages from their scripture reading. But they were amazed that Jesus was essentially saying he would do what the people of God in the Old Testament Israel were rebuked for not doing. Jesus will meet the needs of those who need God. This creates dissonance in the minds of the audience. They're likely thinking, how could my old neighbor say he is sent to those kinds of people? He's the carpenter's kid, not our Messiah. Asking, 
Is not this Joseph's son, in verse 22, points to the truth that they rejected who Jesus claimed he is. Yes, Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, but he's the son of God. He was sent by his father in heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary, his mother. The audience was in a unique position to sit under Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry. But rather than trusting in his gracious words that were coming from his mouth, they chose to reject Jesus and even let their repulsion of him get the better of them. The same can be true of us when we dislike the words of those we have relationships with. Back at my town's homecoming, I attended uh, my high school class reunion, and I was excited to reconnect with old classmates. As we all reunited and began catching up, I couldn't help but wonder how some of my classmates went from where they were years ago when we graduated to now. Ten years ago, one of my classmates said he would always work for his parents at their local restaurant and, and never leave the town where we attended school. But now, ten years later, he's working at a tech company in Chicago, and he's married and has two kids. I couldn't believe it when he shared those life updates with me. It just didn't add up. How could someone who I knew for 17 years make such big changes in their life? And inwardly, I, I questioned my classmate's life updates because of who he claimed to now be. He's not the same person I once knew, and I didn't like that. We can do the same thing after hearing our friend's testimony of salvation. We can think, is their life really changed by Jesus, and will they really make following Jesus a priority? You see, it's, it's these kinds of questions that are wrapped up in our judgment of who we think people ought to be based on our past experiences with them. We're skeptical rather than celebratory of new life in Christ. And we can be just as skeptical with our Savior and his power at work in new believers. So in our passage, doubt centers on the identity of Jesus. And as a result, he is rejected by the very people who assumed they knew him. And you can bet those we teach in our relational spaces who are, who are curious about Jesus will carry assumptions about him and who they think he should be. And assumptions are shattered when we teach who Jesus actually says he is. One assumption we can have about Jesus is he has to prove to us what he professes. Like the audience, we are more interested in the proof of signs and miracles rather than the profession of the sign of signs, the miracle of God in the flesh. It's like Jesus is, is reading their collective minds here. So he rebukes them with a proverb in verse 23, and he rebukes them again in verses 25 through 27. We see Jesus accepts those who trust in him, though they're, they're far away from him by social, cultural, and spiritual barriers. And at this, the audience's repulsion of Jesus bubbles over after being taught that they were actually the ones who were not included in God's salvation plan, though they, though they thought they were so close to him spiritually. And like the audience, we can think that we're entitled to salvation because of our devotion. They were God's chosen people devout to him, and today we can be devoted to the religion of God, but not the Son of God. It's disorienting, disorienting when our paradigm for how to get right and stay right with God is shattered. But Jesus is so good at flipping the script on our lives, and that is so good for us. For you, maybe you're worshiping Jesus and enjoying his gift of salvation, but still cling to idols in parts of your life. We can worship how we think things have to be in our lives and all the while miss what Jesus wants for our lives. Whether it be choosing the right neighborhood to raise a family or the right amount of funds for a retirement account or even just how to spend our time, 
during the weekends. Those can be big plans and, and not wrong in and of themselves, but it's, it's disorienting when Jesus says wrong to our plans because you've missed his plans rooted in his way of living the good life. And it is so good for us when we are corrected by Christians who know us and our life situation, who, who point out our idols by asking where our hearts are for where we choose to live, what we choose to invest in, and how we spend our time. There may be those of you who think you are close to God but are missing his blessing found in Jesus. While there are others of you even right now who feel far away from the love of God but actually have Jesus near to you. The Gentile woman and Naaman the leper in our passage, these were the last people we would expect to be blessed by God. They're citizens of of pagan nations. They're on the margins of society. And yet they are symbols of who Jesus was sent to, whom he healed, cleaned, and loved, making them right with God. The audience in verse 28, they're they're full of wrath at this point over over all of this because they, they don't love Jesus. They don't love these new people of Jesus and they wanna kill Jesus for it. So when we teach the gospel, we can be sure that some will be repulsed by us and our Jesus. As Pastor Jeremy taught us last week, relational witnessing can be hard despite our best efforts of growing our friendships with our unbelieving friends and family. Even when the teachable moments flow naturally into our conversations, our audience may still find our good news repulsive to their ears. And after hearing their rejection, it is right to feel sad. It is right to grieve. But River City Church, do not lose heart when our close friends and loved ones reject Jesus. Jesus took even our most repulsive sins upon himself and healed us once and for all. His remedy is available to all who will receive him. Pray this good news over yourselves and pray it over the relationships in your lives. And if you walked into this room today feeling rejected by others or even rejecting of yourself from the repulsive things you've thought or done, you need to know that Jesus does not reject you. He is not repulsed by you. And that's why he says in verse 19, he, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is his forgiveness of your sins, which is at the center of his teaching. So when we teach the gospel, Some will be repulsed by us. Others will be remedied by Jesus. And many will be rallied to teach his good news to others. For it is Jesus who rallies us onto his mission, just as he himself rallied back from the brink of death in our passage. In verses 28 and 29, the audience was doing exactly as Jesus predicted back in verse 24. They, they rise up, they take hold of him, they, they remove him from the synagogue, and they take Jesus outside the city to the edge of the cliff with the intent to cast him over the edge. But in verse 30, Jesus shows the audience he is Lord over death, and he chooses to die on his own terms according to his father's plans. Jesus even performs a you profess, now prove it sign by passing through their midst in verse 30. And still, we, we don't see here that the hometown, his hometown recant of their actions and believe in him. Indeed, Jesus was not accepted by his hometown, yet he still showed grace to them through his teaching of good news for all who would believe in him. And in verse 31, 
we see that Jesus even rallies onward to Capernaum and beyond there where he continued his rhythm of teaching in the places of worship. This is something Jesus commissioned his followers to do in what we do today. But Jesus did not just come to teach and tell others to teach. He came to die. The shadow of the cross hung over Jesus' teaching from the very beginning of his mission. From the beginning, Jesus was aware that he, like the prophets Elijah and Elisha, would be rejected. He would be rejected by his own. And the rejection in Nazareth points to the future rejection in Jerusalem, where he would be tried of the crimes he had not committed. He'd be hung up on a cross by those who wrongfully slandered him. And he would die a gruesome and humiliating death that we deserve all to fulfill what was foretold concerning him in the scriptures. Yet this very rejection would confirm his messianic identity. For even after being dead, Jesus came back to life and is alive now, which proves he will do the same for all those who follow him. This is the gospel message that Christians have been teaching for over 2,000 years. Teaching methods may have changed, but the message we teach has stayed the same. And before we conclude, I just want to mobilize us with some of the ways that we can apply this rhythm of teaching in our relational spheres of influence. Now, some of you may not think of yourselves as teachers, but I want you to know that you all have the God-given capability to teach. You can do it. In fact, you were made to do it because you've taught someone, somewhere, something at some point in your life. That process is no different with teaching the scriptures. It all starts with sharing what you're learning with others. Over the summer, our church leaders taught us the four questions for good Bible reading. I encourage you to do this as we finish our 15-minute reading challenge in the book of Luke. Answer from the scripture you're reading, who is God? What is God doing? Who am I and what am I called to do? This process is vital for you to then share with others what you are learning. It's why we've integrated this tool into all of our ministry teams and groups. It's not a cliche to say that the best teachers are the best learners because sharing what you're learning with others from the scriptures is often a critical step in leading others to Jesus. We also live in a time with instant access to tons of information and learning how to teach the scriptures is no exception. While there are many trustworthy resources on this topic, One such resource I highly recommend that you check out is a podcast, and it's called Help Me Teach the Bible. It's a podcast produced by the Gospel Coalition and hosted by Nancy Guthrie. And I I think Nancy's a wonderful Bible teacher, and she knows firsthand what it feels like to be ill-equipped and not confident in teaching the scriptures. Her journey has led her to creating hundreds of episodes that feature every book of the Bible and many topics on equipping all kinds of Bible teachers to creatively teach through the scriptures. I've been encouraged learning from Nancy how stories in the Old Testament point to Jesus. How the stories about the law in the book of Numbers point to Jesus, upholding the law perfectly for us so that we can have new hearts that love God and love others or how the temple stories in the book of 2 Kings point to Jesus becoming the temple in us by filling us with his Holy Spirit. So the next time you're at home doing a chore or commuting to work, whatever you have going on, listen to an episode on this. Listen to an episode on the book of a Bible, book of the Bible that you're reading or a topic you're planning to teach on. And know that we have teachers here at River City Church in-house who would love to help you with your teaching. My challenge to each of you this week is to get feedback 
from others in our church to grow in your teaching. It can be humbling and also very encouraging to put yourself out there for others to give you feedback. And when you're the one giving feedback, give good feedback. Let your feedback be driven not by how you can get more people to marvel at the teacher's words, but instead by teaching how marvelous Jesus is and why he's worth following. Truly, these tools like a diagram, a podcast, or giving feedback are vehicles the Lord can use to lead us to Jesus so that the scriptures we teach others lead them to Jesus. So despite the tools or resources or a rallying cry from a preacher to encourage you to teach the Bible, there will be days when you're simply not up for teaching. You may be in a season where teaching is hard. It can feel wearisome. We see that in the life of Jesus. He wasn't always teaching. In fact, he often had seasons where he would get away to rest and recharge and to Sabbath. Whatever ministry you're called to teach in right now, could be home groups, could be family ministry, or could be something more organic, like homeschooling your kids or coaching your sports team, you can expect there will be days you're supposed to teach and you're just not feeling up for it. Maybe it's that streak of five or less hours of sleep you're getting, or that trip back to the auto body to patch another tire deflated by the Minnesota cold, or other headaches that deprive you from teaching or doing whatever rhythm at the level you want to do them at. Our calling at the end of the day is to be like that teacher I mentioned at the beginning. Be the one who holds out what is good for you, and that includes the insufficient you. The gospel is good news for you just as much as it is for those you teach. Don't abstain from opening his word. God uses his word to form us, to remind us of who we are in him. The scriptures form us every time we engage with him, and I mean it every time. You may not notice after one reading or a hundred readings, but his word does not return void. And that applies to when we read and when we teach and when we simply hold it out to others. Hold out the bread of life because Jesus is sufficient for you and for me. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.